Hi, Chris. How are you? Good evening, Rod. Yes, all is well here in our house. Shall we begin? Glad to hear it. Yeah, let's kick off Wake From Sleep, episode 16, for the 9th of May, 2022. So I think our follow-ups with me this week. So first item was just briefly Tony Fidel, who we talked a little bit about last week with his new Bill book. Um, he's actually guest starring on the Decoder Pass podcast, which is part of the Verge Network. I was listening to the Decoder podcast anyway. It's really interesting. And I keep recommending it to people. And then Tony Fidel popped up. So I just thought I'd mention his follow-up. He's on it, talking a bit about his book, a bit about being at 90s Apple. No, 2000s Apple, apologies. Just really good. Seems, seems an interesting guy and obviously was pivotal in getting the iPod and the iPhone out the door. So um, would recommend if, if people are interested. Am I thinking of the right guy that Tony Fidel also had something to do with the essential phone when that came along? I don't know. We have to go and check, but, I think. But, but he did nest, obviously. We it's the guy we talked about last week. Yeah, I remember talking about him next week and, and his influence on Apple. You know, him and Jobs and I have obviously had a big impact on each other when they were doing the iPod, because we know the success that was, as we talked about last week. And then uh, the Moji didn't work quite so well at Nest, although we both had the thermostats, so not necessarily a bad thing. And I know he went off to try and do other things afterwards. So no, that's really interesting. He's popped up on that podcast. It's really good. He's obviously doing the rounds to promote his new book, but um, just really good. And I really like the podcast. Neil Patel hosts it. They have CEOs in a various big, big corps. And um, just really interesting to see how, how they're structured, how they work. And I think Neil does a good job of interviewing. Um, Neil, so definitely recommend. I'm always with you on that. Neil is an excellent reviewer of products. Uh, I think that his legal background gives him a certain particular perspective on things that not everybody's got. So yeah, I, I, that's worth, well worth a listen, I'd say. Yeah, definitely. And I think he's just quite personable as well, which really helps. And he just seems to get on well with whoever he's interviewing at whatever level they are. So, I, yeah, big, big recommend for me. Anyway, that was it. So Tony Fidel on the Decoder Pass podcast. Excellent. We'll put a link in the show notes. And the second one about Google Meet and picture and picture and things like that on, on iPads is over to you as well. Yeah, so this just came up today and following up, I think we, we briefly touched on it. I, think, I can't even remember which episode, but many, many weeks ago, I was on a Google Meet today and I just swiped out of the app on my iPad and it did the picture and picture perfectly. Half was myself, so I could see my preview. Half was the person I was talking to and I could go off and use my iPad as normal. Why can't all iPad apps that do conferencing do this? So if you do it in Zoom, if you swipe out into another app, I get your picture and you lose me completely, it turns my camera off, which is rubbish. If in, you're doing Teams, you get nothing. You just get audio. But why can't they all do what Google do? And it's really unusual that Google are trailblazing on the iPad because normally they are very much laggards. Yeah, their history of developing apps for iOS and iPadOS has not been great. They've been very slow at implementing, I know, split screen and things like that uh, on, on the iPad when you're trying to work on two Google Doc documents at the same time and other things as well. So top job, Google, well done. Yeah, generally a surprise and delight moment. I was like, oh, this really works really well. Now I want all my meetings to be in Google Meet so I can go off and use my iPad whilst doing the call. <laughs> Google products you like. I'm very impressed. I'm, I'm going to give some instant follow-up so I don't have any to do next week. Fidel uh, is suing a chap called Andy Rubin who, who founded Android and was bought by Google uh, way back when uh, to found the Android operating system over Andy Rubin's company, which is called Essential, which designed a particular connector with the Essential phone that was going to be able to snap New, new cameras onto or microphones or any connectors like that. But uh, Tony Fidel apparently thought he had copyright on that and prior art on that. So that's why I'm getting the two uh, gentlemen mixed up there. Right. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. And now you've mentioned the essential phone. I do remember what it was like. Did that, that never ship, did it? It absolutely did ship. Oh, the, it did. the essential one shipped, but uh, nobody bought it because I think 
with the best will in the world, the Android ecosystem is primarily dominated by a couple of big players, I'd say. Sam, Samsung, Xiaomi, and Huawei back in the day certainly did as well. To a certain extent, Motorola and a few other minor players like TCL and things like that as well. But it's it's very hard to make a distinctive product in Android. And I think there's a history of devices releasing with a connector that really goes to nothing at the end of the day. If you remember back in the days, the handspring visor and things like that, they had a connector uh, that you could put your ha- your effectively palm pilot into a variety of sleeves that would do different things. I think they're notable for being the first mobile device that actually came with a modem. It wasn't a 3G modem or even a 2G modem at that point, I don't think. But it turned the little handspring visor into one of the first mobile devices you get where you could get your email on it and things like that. So connectors work, but handspring's not around anymore. Palm's not around anymore. And certainly the essential phone only lasted one version and not for very long. So, okay, well, that makes sense. So the essential phone, like I said, I didn't even know if it had even shipped. Interesting you mentioned handspring. I don't know if you've seen it, but Dieter Bonn over at The Verge did like a history of the handspring visor. I definitely recommend it. It's called Springboard. Really, really good. Whilst I never owned one, my brother worked at 3Com during the acquisition and sale of, I think 3Com bought Palm, they owned them for a short while and then they, I think they owned US Robotics at the same time, or I can't remember now, and then they sold them over to HP and so just, yeah in, interesting part, I remember it very well, I used to have a Palm 5, love that thing so good quality OS, good quality hardware and it was quite interesting, remember I think it was last week we were talking about the play date and kind of Palm did what Play don't need to do and have that store of apps or, or at least that catalogue of apps. Whilst they didn't own the app store themselves, you could at least go there and go, oh, look, here's all the apps for calendars or making lists and things. And you, you'd go off to third parties. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah, I saw that. And immediate correction, Bond now works for Google. He's left uh, The Verge and moved on to Google. But yeah, it's, it's an excellent documentary. And I guess we should put the link for that in the show notes as well. If you've got any interest in sort of the prehistory of, of smartphones and things as we know them now, Handspring were definitely the company that did that. And I had a handspring visor. I used to use it when I was doing night shifts nursing. I did calculations, I had spreadsheets of drug interactions and all sorts of things for it. And that's going back a very long time. Sort of mid-90s, I guess, is when I had that. It was an excellent little device. And you were right, they were bought by Palm eventually. Anyway, Chris, on to the news. Yeah, let's move on to the news. So first up, we've got Apple Director of Machine Learning leaves over their policy of getting people back to work in person. So quite interesting. So directors leaving seems quite a senior person. I guess two things surprised me on this. One, some of senior leaving over being asked to go back to work, which is probably in their terms of employment since before the pandemic. And if you're in the UK, it's quite normal, I think, now to be expected to do a couple of days in the office. I do see lots of other companies having some churn as, as the reality of, I'm going to say post-COVID, I don't know what you think about that, but as you're living with COVID kicks in now and we're getting back to some normality. We certainly have it at our place, we work two days a week in the office, and I'm sure we will have lost staff over just getting back to some sort of normality. Personally, I like a couple of days in the office and I like the ability to work from home. I like my team to do it. I think being in the office is healthy because you get to, have some face to have some FaceTime. I was going to say, but you, you know what I mean. Actually, have some face to FaceTime, and I find as a manager, it's a good way just to make sure my staff are okay, and you're, you're checking in with them because we do have some members of staff that don't like to have their webcam on, and it's hard just to gauge where they are. They looking after themselves. So that's my view. I don't know where you're at. I think that's quite good from a sort of corporate and social responsibility, not all what your company does, but looking after your your employees and their pastoral care and all that kind of stuff. Of course, I think that's fair enough. My 
I agree with you. I think the pandemic is now endemic and we're just going to have to live with it. It, it, it. It's odd to me looking at the news we get from America. On one hand, they seem very gung-ho and they're going ahead and they want to do all these things. And on the other hand, they're very cautious. I think my particular take on this, you know, he may have signed a contract of employment prior to the pandemic, but we fundamentally live in a different world now. And I suspect what most employees are looking for ignoring my management hat on, is for their employer to be understanding and to have a little bit of flexibility, whatever that flexibility is, be it the 100% I don't want to be in the office to I can tolerate, you know, six days a year to I expect back three to five days a week. I think it's, it's a very difficult thing to say. And we don't know how some employees have reacted to that. If this gentleman was super productive not being in the office, you know, he, and he was knocking it out of the park with every single thing and his team were behind him and they were firing all guns blazing. As a manager, I'd be okay with that. You know, if it's working for you, that's fine. That, that, that's my own personal opinion. And I guess Apple corporate would have something different and other corporations would too. I think it's very dangerous for Apple who have struggled in the machine learning space as much as they have. Let's just, you know, shout on... Fair point. Uh, let's just shout on a hoidingus and see how clever that particular element of is, which is the most visible one to most people. Ignoring what you can do in Xcode and, you know, you actually bring, bring your own machine learning models into your own development tools. I, I think it's a bit of an knife edge they're walking there. And it is a company that has talented people who are of interest to other big companies who live or work in that part of America, be it Meta, be it Google, be it Snap and, or other companies like that that make effective use of machine learning. To say nothing of Tesla and, and Rivian and all these other companies that are looking for machine learning experts for autonomous vehicles and things. So it's it's a very tricky line to walk for Apple, and I'm not sure they got it right with this. Yeah, I don't disagree. And just some clarity, they are expecting staff to be back in three days a week, um, which is their hybrid work plan, which starts in about two weeks from now. And then the um, director we are just talking about, he believes strongly that more flexibility would have been the best policy for his team, which I don't disagree with. I, my personal view is we've just got to find what works for the company, the person and the team. And it's trying to find the best of um, all worlds there. I see it fine at work. A lot of people say, when I come into work, Chris, I don't do as much work when I'm in the office. I'm like, that's fine. But you're having that social part of your job. And I'm usually pushing for people to be in it one day a week. That's that's my preference right now. And we're all, all trying to adhere to that. And if they want to come in more, more that if that works better for them, then fine. Come in five days a week, whatever works. But it's just to make sure everybody's okay. That's that's the bit I'm more wor worried about with my team. Because some people just have struggled at home and won't put their hand up just to go, I'm struggling. I, and I think that's quite right. And if that's right, I think what you've hit on there is that's right for your team. I'm sure other parts of your business are, have a, a very different view on that. There's probably parts of your business that have been in over the entire pandemic and the course of the lockdowns and everything that just got on with it. Uh, and working in, a, in an IT-based business, as both you and I do, I think we can be more understanding. And I, you know, I do... You've got to do what's right for you, and you've got to do what's right for the company. It's a fine line to walk there as well. And I just feel that they've kind of messed it up in this instance where they should have, Apple Corporate should have given the guy the leverage or the space to do what he wanted with his team. As long as he hits his goals or overperforms, whatever it is they're expecting him to do for the team, that'd be fine. I guess it causes jealousy in other parts of the company, but at the same time, it depends what you do. If you work in an Apple store, you know, Monday to Friday, you got to get into your shifts to sell the products. It's very different if you're somewhere else within the, within the company or your software developer. So I just think a bit more sensitivity to the employees would, would not have hurt Apple in this instance. Yeah, you're probably right. And I probably some autonomy within their own teams, you know. It's got to be the right way to go, isn't it? Okay, yeah. should we go to the next one then? Oh, sorry. 
No, that's fair enough. So the next one is more of a rumour than, than actual sort of confirmed news, but I, I, it feels like a cert at this point. And this is that Apple is planning new colours for the AirPods Max alongside new AirPods Pro 2 that will launch this fall. So uh, you have AirPods uh, Max. I can see them on your head right now, Chris. I'm wearing them as we talk. I love my AirPods Max. Whilst I get they're very expensive, I use them all the time. I actually bought the, I don't know what they call them, the, the Space Grey variant. I didn't really want to draw too much attention to myself wearing them, so I went for the subtlest colour, if I'm honest. The new colours I saw somewhere online, they just all look very pastely to me, but hey-ho, I'm, I'm probably not the target audience for them. No, it's an interesting move for this product, and it's very Apple. It's certainly not revolution or even evolution in this 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 case. They've released very good headphones. Yeah, you would you would attest to that as you're wearing them now. Excellent Bluetooth headphones with all the things built in that you'd want to these days. For me, a they were very expensive, but that's okay. The headphones I'm wearing, which are Sony XM3s, were also very expensive back in the day because of the active noise cancelling and things that they do. They're certainly not now. You can pick them up and XM4s for an awful lot cheaper than they were new. Why I didn't and wasn't and won't be interested in AirPods Max are the fact that they don't fold very well. I don't disagree with that one. They don't fold that well. I've got the, I'm going to call it the bra holder because it is it is pretty rubbish to be fair. The audio quality for me is amazing. I'm not an audiophile. I don't, I don't get slash can't believe they don't support uh, the lossless stuff that Apple came out with six months after they released, what, a 550 quid set of headphones. The quality of the build is really good on them. The comfort is the best I've ever had. I've got a big head. They fit so well. They're so comfortable. I wear them a lot at night when I go out for a walk for half an hour, an hour. They do get very hot when you wear them in the day and if you're busy doing something. So I do keep them more just for relaxing, but music's awesome on them. By, by contrast, you mentioned these Sony XM4s, I think you said. How much are they as a comparative? I've no idea. Uh, well, the ones I'm wearing now, I bought four years ago in Heathrow Airport and they cost me 350 quid. Uh, okay. So a little bit cheaper than, than AirPods Max, but not a huge amount when you're in that sort of market for expensive headphones. And I know, let's face it, expensive head headphones, you can go into the thousands of pounds for some of the clever open back ones that need their own amplifiers to drive them and all the rest of it. It's still expensive for non-folding Bluetooth headphones. And at the time of, of the AirPods Max, some of the stuff about how they switched off and how they were managing their battery and putting it back in the case to, I really didn't like any of that either. It just seemed unduly complex to me. Now that's fair. They've fixed all of that now, I think, with, with various bits of firmware. The case, though, is so rubbish, the little groove where you put the lightning cable to charge is in the wrong place in the case. So I don't know how they managed to make the case such a travesty. But other than that, they are really great, great big kit. But I don't take them when I when I stay away or out on business. I just take my AirPods Pro with me because obviously they're pocketable. But I agree on the folding piece. Like if I was doing a long flight, I'd want to take these, but I probably wouldn't take them because they just take up so much space and I'd be worried they'd break. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, I bought them for traveling. As I say, I bought them in Heathrow Airport and they fold away into you know a reasonably small container that fits in my rucksack and off I go. And the battery life on them is amazing, sort of 15, 16 hours, something like that. It charges with a USB-C connector and, and I'm off to the races with them. So they sort of suited everything I wanted. Yeah, the lack of USB-C is annoying. Kind of wish Apple would give up on Lightning at some point, or they need to do USB-C and MagSafe and cut out Lightning. That's what we've got to do, and let's do away with Lightning now because I MagSafe my phone, I MagSafe my AirPods, I USB-C literally everything else in my house apart from these headphones and the Apple remote. Every now and again, it needs a charge, so I do think they need to standardise on just two connectors, whereas we're standardising on three or four now. 
I, I, I agree. It's time to move on. And just to finish this rumor off, really. So the, the plan is new pastel colors. Well, hey, both of us are very thrilled about that. I'm sure anybody who's been waiting to drop over 500 quid in a set of headphones is going to appreciate the Monster and Pastel. And it'll support lossless playback. But that requires a whole new Bluetooth, Bluetooth codec, as far as I'm aware, because the current ones don't support that sort of compression over the air. So we'll have to see what that brings as well. And then they'll I must confess, I'm not sure I'd upgrade just for lossless playback from where I am, because I don't know I would notice the difference. Yeah, the um, Upgrade podcast did a little experiment last year where they released the podcast in a variety of compression formats from lossless down to something like, uh, I don't know, 14K or 9K or something like that. Uh, and I don't think a lot of people could hear the difference between the lossless version and the standard one they put out. And I don't believe most people, particularly when they get over sort of the age of 40, that their ears are really good enough to be able to pick that stuff up. So yeah, it, it's it's a bit of an ask for an upgrade to that for me. Yeah, sorry, I was just checking out the price of these headphones. They're £100 off on Amazon, but Wait. I agree with you on it's a bit of an ask for, for Mark II. And will Mark II be more expensive because the cost of everything's just going up? Well, it's true. So the supply of chips to put in them, uh, that's not going easier, has it? On the flip side of this rumour, new AirPods Pro, AirPods Pro 2, I am interested in that. I wear my AirPods Pro pretty much every day to walk the dog or walk to work or, or whatever we're doing all through the pandemic they are handy at a pinch when you're sat in a, uh, and you just need to do a quick quick video conference or something like that they are almost the perfect headphones for me it took me about two weeks to adapt from airpods one as was to airpods pro because i didn't really like the way they fit in my ears and i didn't like the fact that the sort of skip forward wasn't available at that point they've fixed all these things since and and i changed the grommet that puts fits in my ear so i got a better fit them as well which was a top tip uh, i love them to bits the batteries are beginning to go now so i am quite interested in airpods pro too yeah same i use my airpods pro all the time i'm on conference calls all day every day that's the only thing i use i walk a lot i use them around the house a lot they are awesome. I will buy a second pair as soon as they come out because I know I'll get the, the mileage out of them and my batteries are starting to go too. Totally. And we're slightly hypocritical because what they're saying is these will probably support uh, lossless audio as well, which we don't care about, but it's for the battery and the fact they're really good headphones anyway that I'm interested in. Yeah, definitely. And because they work on my MagSafe charger, I haven't got the MagSafe case, but I use the MagSafe charger for them. It, it's brilliant. So convenient. Actually, just tangentially, wife's birthday tomorrow she actually asked for a pair of airpods it's the first time she's asked for a tech product in a long time as a present i didn't buy the pros because i didn't think she'd be that fast but i did buy the airpods gen 3 because i thought the twos look quite old now i'll go for the three but whether i pick the right ones it's hard to know they're going to fit right in her ear and all of that but um it's a risk it is a risk, and if it's any consolation, I bought my youngest daughter AirPods 3 for her for Christmas, and she loves them to bits, she uses them all the time, they fit in her ear, and she's delighted with them, so you never know. Fingers crossed. Well, my wife's got my old Gen 1s, and she loves them, and they, she can run with them and do phone calls with it, but they've aged out in spectacular fashion. So. I think you'll be fine. Good. We've gone longer on that rumor than I thought we would, and I'm just going to finish it with the thought that AirPods, Apple's best product in years, question mark? I think it's their one with universal acclaim in years, definitely. Yep. Um, I find very few people to complain about any of any of it. Yep, good. Uh, other, other than the price. <laughs> On the max. Right, moving swiftly along, and I think this will be done quite quickly, uh, Apple's merger of iCloud documents and data into iCloud Drive is now complete. So then rather than being uh, separate applications, they're all just merged into iCloud. I very much doubt that anybody ever thought about this once, and I very much doubt anybody uses pages in its web-based version on the cloud with to collaborate with almost anyone 
yeah, I read this at the weekend, I think, when it came out, and I, I had to read it again because I was like, I don't know what I'm reading, if I'm brutally honest, but it is what it is. They've, I guess that's why I've now got a lot less iCloud folders maybe in my iCloud view and they've merged it. Oh, I don't really know. I, I just love the, the little comment in the article that says, the vast majority of iCloud users already have iCloud Drive enabled, yes, because most people have joined fairly relatively recently. So they won't see any changes, but for users who had iCloud accounts prior to the introduction of iCloud Drive in 2014 and never enabled it, now they can. Great, well done. Sounds like yeah. something that should have been done years ago to me. It feels, maybe they just clean up a bit of legacy. And you often see this before WWDC, a little bit of legacy gets dealt with. You may see a couple of outages of serv- services. Could be all circumstance, but you often get it just before. I think they, they start getting stuff ready for big upgrades. Fair enough. I think that's done. So the next rumor I put in, because I know you got a new toy in the last week or so, and I just thought it was interesting, and that some new BMWs will need a software update to get Wi-Fi, Android Auto, and Apple CarPlay to work because of the chip shortage. What are your thoughts on cars shipping without vital things that, that in many cases, owners have paid quite a lot of money for? Well, my BMW did come with CarPlay, so I'm very happy, because if it hadn't, I would have been miffed. Um I guess my view would be I'd be relatively calm about this if it's going to come in about a month's time. I can have my car today and in about a month I'll be able to have Android Auto or CarPlay. I guess if I didn't have CarPlay, I wouldn't be too miffed about it as long as it worked as advertised, you know, did was quick, supported full screen, that kind of thing. So I can see why they're doing it. I had to wait a couple of extra months for my car to arrive. So I get it. They're reacting to the situation and maybe this is the, the best solution. And hopefully it's going to help their production longer term in that, they will get both both chips working and therefore they can pick and choose which chips go in which which cars kind of like apple do with the screen tech in the iphones you know we've seen different screens or different modems going in so i'm relatively calm about it. it's a shame they haven't got the firmware ready first but software is hard software is hard and they're not the first car company to suffer from this i know tesla uh, were shipping vehicles without USB-C connectors in them because they just there weren't enough of them to be put, put in the cars. And I think those kinds of compromises, as long as they fix them afterwards, are perfectly acceptable. I think people would rather have their cars. They can still charge them wirelessly. You know, it's not the end of the world if, if they can't do it. They get a lot on the screen in a Tesla. It's not. It's, it's not the be all and end all. There isn't actually another USB socket in the glove box when the car's always recording to that one anyway. If you want to choose that one, so you've got other options anyway. So I think those kinds of compromises are fine. Yeah, agreed. I mean, some BMWs, they're shipping without touchscreens, which would be more annoying because you can't fix that in post, can you? No, that kind of hardware, you are kind of, uh, you're stuck with that then. That would be a a bit of a pain these days because that's definitely your CarPlay gone, I would would assume. No, because in the BMW, you get iDrive as well, which is like a dial in the in the middle by the the gear stick, which is awesome. Look, mine came with both, so I'm very happy. And look, I I was going to cover a bit more of the car. When we get to the main show. Okay, I won't, I won't mess it up. I'll just say that uh, my daughter's mini has that button in the middle and I bloody hate it. So, uh, yeah, so I guess it's whatever you're used to. Okay, I think that'll do us for news. Should we move on to stuff about media? Yeah, media this week's largely me by the looks of it. So I just put a couple of bit, bits in here just to pick up on. First up, they call me Magic. I watched all four. Awesome. Just go watch it. It's just really interesting about a guy's life who was amazing at basketball. I know nothing about basketball. I don't know the rules. But was just, I've heard of the Lakers. He played for them. I'd heard of Magic Johnson, but knew very little around it. Just really enjoyed it. Some sad bits, some good bits. Just generally all, all round really good. And just, yeah, just recommend it. Excellent. I'll check it out. Uh, um, any, anything else? Next up, the big con. 
I did try to watch this in the same vein of They Call Me Magic. I thought, oh, I quite enjoy it. A documentary around a real person. Just, I don't know, struggle just to get into it, if I'm honest. I don't know why. So I got through the first one, but not sure I'm going to go back to it. So moving along is then Tehran Series 2's just come out, which I'm really looking forward to. And I need to finish Severance so I can get on with this because I love Tehran 1. It reminded me a bit of 24 to begin with. And I'm just keen to see what they're doing in Series 2. So that's come out last Friday, I think. So it should be, what, four episodes now, uh, three episodes available now, and then there'll be another one coming. I didn't even know it was planning a second series. I, I remember you discussing the first series of Tehran when it when it appeared, and you thought it was quite an interesting sort of spy thriller uh, type thing, and I had absolutely no interest in watching it. I don't know why it didn't appeal to me. Maybe it's something I should check out. Not that I haven't got a lot of other stuff to be watching, frankly. But yeah, no, that's that's interesting. It's done a second series, and they obviously had enough success to it. So, and what you said about the Call Me Magic, I think that sounds like it's worth following up on. For me, I've been watching Star Trek Picard that's been on Amazon Prime the last couple of weeks, which if you're ever a fan of the next generation, it's it's quite nice to, you know, to see what happened to a couple of those characters down the line a little bit. If you're not a Star Trek fan, then yes, I am a massive nerd. I apologize, but actually I don't apologize. I'm unap- unapologetically a Star Trek nerd. There's no shame in it these days. Ge- geek and nerd culture is, is, is perfectly acceptable from playing computer games to watching Star Trek. So no, it's pretty good. I will finish with the thought that modern Star Trek has a problem that it's quite good at beginnings. It's quite good at endings. It's terrible in the middle. The pacing is so off in all of these shows, Star Trek Discovery, Star Trek Picard. It, they really need, the writers need to sort it out. And re- they've only got 10 episodes most of them these days, not like 22 or 24 like we used to back in the day why is the pacing so terrible i really don't understand that is odd so look for me star trek just never got into it i don't know why just never really i don't even gave it a fair shot so never got into it i have seen the films that came out more recently i can't even think when they were but i mean it's many many years ago now but actually quite enjoyed the films but just never got into the the tv shows now but it's right in my wheelhouse like you say it's proper nerd geekdom so maybe maybe i need to take it another world but to your previous point there's so much stuff coming out at the moment like every other week apple's dropping some new series so i'm i'm falling behind it's very easy to do so and if you are a genre fan like a star trek fan or you know apple tv or severance or you like a little bit of this that or the other thing i mean just to give the the star trek example they went from and we'll talk we could talk about marvels in a little bit and disney plus a little bit as well they went from uh, releasing star trek discovery to immediately into star trek picard and then they're about to launch this new thing star trek uh, strange new worlds so you've got three completely disparate episodes of star trek going on sequenced one after the other so there's always something going i presume this is for paramount plus or whatever they're calling it in america at this point as a streamer are they trying to fill their streaming yeah. So when you've got a tent pole like that, then then off you go. And and Disney do this as well. So le- on the lead up to uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which I went to see in the cinema the weekend, th- then they've been doing Moon Knight. And when Moon Knight finishes, they'll move, they'll quickly put another Star Trek thing out. So we're getting Star Trek Obi Wan any minute now as well. So they've got a whole roster of things upcoming. I think you meant Star Wars Obi Wan. Oh my God, there you go. That's my geek card gone already. <laughs> but it's, you know, there's a lot of stars going on. It's, it's like that game. Do you ever play that game where they just play John Williams soundtracks? You need to guess whether it's Superman, Indiana Jones, Jurassic Park. It's very quick. You get lost in which is which. I mean, John Williams is an amazing composer. But uh, after you've listened to them a couple of times, Jurassic Park, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, you can guess them wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, I can understand that. It can all blur a little bit, can't it? So I apologise to uh, any geeks out there listening to me uh, get Star Trek, Star Wars uh, mixed up, but uh, excellent. Good. I think that'll do it for media, Chris. We can move on to gaming. Definitely. Gaming it is. Over to you. So 
I just thought this was an interesting thing, considering not that long ago we were talking about sort of the lack of, of games appearing on the Mac and Apple not supporting games as sort of a first-party publisher. They certainly don't promote them outside of the iPad and, and outside of iOS. And it was just a little article that we, I found on Mac Rumors talking about how there's a one of the main porting companies that brings Windows games to the Mac is Feral Interactive. And they're just opening up about how exciting it is, the Apple Silicon platform. It actually gives them good GPUs to build games against for the first time in a long time. They were really sort of hamstrung in the Intel days because most Macs only had the onboard GPU to work with. And the Intel onboard GPU in most PCs and most, well, most Intel chips was absolutely rubbish. So when you're trying to do advanced sort of 3D graphics and move things around a lot on the screen, particularly for first-person shooters or, you know, these days, in the days of ray tracing and all the rest of things that are built into games, Macs just didn't have the horsepower. You'd see single-digit frames per second in lots of games. And Apple did a little bit to combat this through the re release of a particular API called Metal, which could speak at quite a low level down to GPUs. But as they say in many uh, industries, there's no excuse for cubes. You, you know, you need the actual power underneath it all to take advantage of these things. And the modern M1 GPUs are actually really good. They can write to them. So it's just a little piece by Farrell saying they're quite encouraged by you know the move to Apple Silicon and the amount of GPUs they can access. And they think they're going to be able to port some games and they've got some experience of porting some games. Most recently, I think it's Warhammer, or sorry, Total War, that they've brought to the Mac and actually had quite a good time doing it and it's very performant. So I find that quite encouraging. I hope it continues. There should be more than one publisher bringing first-party games to the Mac. But it seems there is a little bit of light, a glimmer of hope rather. It's not just all bad news in Mac gaming. No, agreed. I think this is good news. And I guess what I hadn't really thought about is the uh, base level uh, Mac now with an M1 in it is a lot higher than what the base level Intel device was because the graphics card, or I say the card, the graphics processing power is just so much more capable. So I, I don't think we'd really appreciated that Well, we knew M1 had moved the bar. We didn't really appreciate it for games. So, so maybe it's a good thing. And I remember them porting games back in the 2000s when we were at uni. So it's great to see they're still going. Yeah, I, I, I agree. It's, it's encouraging. I just hope Apple give developers like this the support that they need and the visibility that they need to sell their games and keep them coming because there's no reason the Mac couldn't be a good gaming platform given the GPUs that we now see in Apple Silicon. So I just thought it was a good news story for once, not just a bad news story. And it's not just yet another sort of Candy Crush clone that we're seeing appear. So good. So the second story, I thought, is a bit of a blast from the past. And I don't know if you had an N64 or Nintendo 64 back in the day. You didn't. But it's a very fond in my memory as one of the best get-your-mates-around-a-TV-and-play-something-together events that we ever had. So the, the standout game for the Nintendo 64, well, there were a couple of them, but one of them was GoldenEye 007, which was a split-screen multiplayer game where you could have four players all at the same time all gathered around the TV, playing each other in a first-person shooter, which was quite novel at the time, unless you were going to hook some PCs up. You certainly couldn't do that um, in an easy way. It was quite a powerful little complex. It was a very fun game uh, made by Rare, who were sort of an, an iconic developer of Nintendo software back in the day. And this little story is just how the Computer Museum has actually managed to work out a way to split them up. One of the problems if you've got four people all playing on the same screen is you can see where your mate's hiding. So if you, if you can manage to get that away a little bit, it, it, it sort of solves the problem. And I just thought it was an amazing use of modern technology to actually break the Nintendo 64 quad screen sharing apart and actually have people not able to see each other's screens. So just interesting use of technology, classic bit of gaming hardware, all came together quite nicely. Interesting article. Yeah, now that is cool. I would love 
to have a go at it. I never, I've never played Goldeneye. I was hoping it was going to come to the Switch when they bought some N64 stuff, but it hasn't. So yeah, I'd love to love to have a go on it, but um, yeah, just never never played it at the time. That and Super Mario 64 were they were the games, weren't they? It really was quite a thing, and I had them both, and Star Fox 64 as well, actually, as a, as a four-player game. It, it just—it was an iconic moment in Nintendo's history, and I hadn't—I think it was the first Nintendo console I actually owned was the N64, and I was blown away by it. It was an amazing bit, and considering it had, well, PCs and other gaming consoles, a really very impressive device. That super, first Super Mario um, that came out for it, Super Mario 64 was just, it was revolutionary. And yeah, it was 3D, and that was really sort of the, the only difference. But the whole, we say sheen for the Apple TV+, Plus. I think the polish that Nintendo brought to it, and the fact that they developed a controller exclusively for being able to make use of a 3D space. The, the N64 controller is a weird sort of tripod, well, triad-shaped uh, device with, with triggers underneath it and all the rest of it. It really was just revolutionary, and it, it felt very different. And getting your, at least three of your mates, often more than three of your mates around to have a go at Goldeneye for uh, an evening with a few beers was a, was a great experience. And uh, yeah, fond memories of that. Is it not strangely ironic that I think Nintendo were their first 64-bit games console, and now you look at the Switch and they're the, <laughs> the ones with the least horsepower, but still got the amazing gameplay? Yeah, there's a lot to be said for just having a quality game, which, you know, moving swiftly along with the next article, because I think the main show might take us a little bit tonight. Classic game reimagined can sometimes be a good thing. So the other thing I've been having a look at this week is a, a game called Tetris Effect Connected, which was available on Xbox Game Pass, so I'd have a look at it. And it is initially, and I haven't played that much of it, Classic Tetris, which is actually another sort of game that made Nintendo very popular back in the day. When you think back to the original Game Boy, that grey screen falling Tetris with that particular music was was certainly something that shifted a lot of Game Boys back in the day. But now it's been brought bang up to date. There's an awful lot going on the screen. There's quite a techno soundtrack going on. And to be quite honest, I wasn't sure if I was having a, a, a fit or whether I was having some sort of flashback to drugs I didn't do when I was in my uh, late teens. Yeah, a very different game. It has a multiplayer component as well, which I'll, I'll, if, I, if it doesn't upset me too much with all its strobe lighting and dance music, I might continue and see. But yeah, if you're an Xbox Game Pass subscriber, I think it's well worth a look. I just want to play Tetris. I'm going to stick with that. I just like traditional Tetris. I do remember on the Game Boy, I never had one, but my friends said it. Why can't they just release a good quality, well-made Tetris game? I would have thought that if that's what you want when you get your play date, there's got to be some sort of Tetris-type game available for the play date. Yeah, you'd have thought, actually. That's, that's a good point. And I'm guessing, so the effect is the bit that's making you trippy, and the connected is you can play with your buddies, I'm guessing. Yeah. Right, okay. Do you remember Tris? Was it Tris? It was like Tetris, but it was made by a third party, if I remember correctly. And it, it was out on the iPhone in a, a relatively early on in, in its uh, life. And then that was, I don't know, I quite like a simple game. Yeah, Tetris Connected, this is not for me. At, um, at work, actually, we do have a Mega Drive, one of the new ones with HDMI on it, the mini ones. And all we do is play Tetris on it, and we can do two-player Tetris. It's awesome. Uh, we shouldn't have the uh, the odd game of Sonic the Hedgehog on that as well. Surely we're going to have one of them. Yeah, I did. I did for a bit of old time's sake because I do enjoy a bit of Sonic. I never got on with Sonic. I found it too fast. Even back then, I found it too fast. Yeah, I don't try it now, dude. No, no, bad things will happen. Good. I think that was a rattle through gaming, and we can move on to the main show. And. The first part of the main show this week was sort of triggered by one of my colleagues at work asking me about uh, streaming boxes, and they wanted to know if they could airplay what was on their laptop to something. Was there some sort of device you could plug into your TV that would let you do that? And of course, the first thing that occurred to me was, well, if you get an Apple TV, 
then you it's just available to it whether you're on your phone or your your Mac laptop or, or your iPad. You got the little AirPlay button, you click on it and it will play whatever's on the screen. Very straightforward. Works 99.8% of the time for me, certainly in the sort of mo more modern incarnations of it. Is that your experience of streaming to Apple TVs? Yeah, I don't do it a huge amount. I just use whatever's on the Apple TV, if I'm honest. I, just, I have the apps and I just do that. Yeah. And I mean, it's a useful bit of technology built into well, most of Apple's products. So, you know, you can, if you've got Spotify running, you could airplay to your HomePods. If you've got a video app running, then you can airplay to your um, Apple TV. So that was interesting, but it made me think, what else is there for people that want to do that kind of stuff? And I guess when we've talked about streaming before, it's always been to do a particular thing. In fact, that particular thing has always been to access Apple TV Plus, you know. On one of these devices, can you do it? So I wondered what else was out there. And there are a number of sort of streaming devices you can get in the UK. If you've got a games console, such as a PlayStation 4 or 5, or an Xbox S or X, or, or even the earlier variants of it, the chances are it's got all the apps built in that you'd expect it to. So in, in the games console space, does the Switch have streaming? The, the Wii U did have iPlayer built into it and YouTube built into it. But uh, So the Switch, you can, you can watch YouTube, and that's pretty much about it there's a youtube app but nothing else okay as, as far as i know happy to be correct that's that that's that sounds reasonable then so a a, a more modern at least hd uh, console could can give you your your apps and, and whoa 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 the switch is hd it runs at 720p in handout and 1080 when you dock it oh fair enough does it do 4k no you said hd okay all right HD. Ultra, ultra Appar HD. apparently the white dock is capable of some sort of 4k and apparently we're awaiting Nintendo to do a firmware release. Okay, so the graphics hardware is in it is good enough. For that. Anyway, it's not good enough to run 4K things. So a lot of the so the, the games consoles, the the more upmarket games consoles. That's not the right word. That the games consoles with better video hardware are capable of supporting up to 4K and all of these things as well. And iPlayer and and all the apps you'd want to install. The app selection you get on them is more limited than some of the other streaming devices that we'll talk about in a minute but you can get the big ones on there so all four is generally on there iplayer is on there youtube is on there and you know the other things that you'd expect to be on there like netflix and amazon prime are on there as well all the companies involved make their own apps too so amazon make their streaming sticks google make their chromecasts and now their android tvs unsurprisingly as first party apps amazon prime works beautifully uh, on, on the Amazon sticks. So things like X-Ray, when you pause it and you want to know who's in the scene, you get little pop-ups that says this actor, this this music is playing in the background. They were also in that, this, that, and the other thing. Works really well. I'm surprised more companies don't copy that, actually. I guess it's because of the IMD, IMDB hookup that Amazon have got. But if you're sitting watching Bosch Legacy or something and you pause it, you can look up who Titus Welliver was, what music is playing in the background. I've seen it. Works really well, that. I don't know if you've seen that. On no, no, I have seen it. Amazon own IMDB. If I'm, yeah, okay. So you're probably right. That, that I guess you could license it, but yeah, I normally just go off to Wiki and have a look at the film if I'm honest. I'm, I'm a bit old school, I guess. Yeah, it's quite nice to have it just there in front of you. So you know that that works quite well, uh, and you can install other apps on it. So you can install Plex, you can install iPlayer, you can install all the other bits and pieces we're talking about, as well as things like Jelly Jellyfin and other sort of slightly more obscure things you might want. So that that works quite well. But again, to the best of my understanding. You need to have an Amazon Prime account for all the features to work, possibly any of the features to work. I'm not entirely sure what happens if I stop paying Amazon Prime, whether my Amazon 4K stick stops working. Well, you won't have any parcels delivered to you, though. Well, that's a fact. Um, 
So maybe that's for the follow-up that we should, we should, I should have a look and see what happens if you're not paying your Amazon Prime subscription. Google's model, because they make them as well, and these things are all available in a range of about 20 quid up to, well, no, no more than 100, I'd say, in most cases, depending on the device you get to get for from Amazon and Google's devices. It's the same. First part of client is YouTube. The early Chromecasts, you needed to have the app installed on your phone, and then you could cast whatever you were looking at on your phone over to that. More modern Android TV has apps built into it, so you can just connect, you know, move around and connect them the way you want to. Then there is the case of Roku, which is quite an interesting company, who have their own sort of uh, platform for this, which almost everybody else supports and supports some things that actually the other companies don't. So Roku claim in a firmware update to have provided AirPlay support. So you may well be able to stream what's on your phone or your laptop to a Roku. I haven't tried it myself. I don't have a Roku stick that supports it. The ones I've got lying around are old now and I've replaced them with other things. But there is the potential that Roku may support it. I'd love to know the stats on how many people actually do AirPlay. Is it? It's a great tech. It was great when it came out, but actually, do people actually use it now? Yeah, the the apps have sort of circumvented it, and of course, there's the sort of edge cases for AirPlay. I'll, I'll finish my thought about Roku before I go. So Roku also cheap from around sort of thirty quid up to about eighty. They support HD players and four K players. They allegedly AirPlay, but I bet the reliability of that isn't particularly amazing because it's not like I said, it's ninety nine point eight percent on Apple devices, but probably less so on, on other d- devices. But they have quite a vibrant app platform, so all the things I've talked about before, iPlayer, Amazon, Plex, Jellyfin, strange things like that are all supported. But also slightly more obscure things like BritBox, I know Roku have an app for, which not a lot of these streaming devices do. And I bet if you went and looked on your PlayStation or Xbox, you wouldn't find a BritBox app, which is a bit of a, a sort of an omission on their part of they're trying to get owners. I think they work in America, but not in the UK. Do you, I haven't heard much on BritBox lately. Do you think it's doing all right? No, I don't think it's doing all right. In the UK, at least, because I read an article not that long ago that the BBC are going to pull out of it. Oh, well, that's killed that then. I well, kind of wonder why they bother getting into it when they could just stick it on the iPlay. Well, but it's again, it's not for us. It's not for the UK market. It's for the American market. That if they want to go to one place where they can watch Sherlock and then maybe go and watch whatever it is on ITV that people might want to watch, then then they've got that option. I suppose there's a lot of back history. So I don't know. If you were a big fan of Sharp back in the day, for example, which was a quality ITV drama, all those things are going to be available to, to UK audience. But initially the plan was just to an American audience. So, yeah, I th- the Roku is an interesting case, and I, I would my recommendation to most people who don't specifically want to do AirPlay would be to buy a Roku stick. I think the price is in the right market. Unless you really want to go and spend 150 quid on an Apple TV uh, device, then uh, it's kind of a sweet spot for most people. That sounds fair, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know really anybody. Well, I, d- I know very few people with any of these boxes, by the way. So most people, I don't just have a TV that does it all because that seems to be the world we live in. My, I'd probably side with you. I love my Apple TV. I've got four of them. I like having the same device everywhere, so I, I can turn it on or my family can turn it on, and it just works. So And it's the same, but it's an expensive way of doing things because for, what, the price of one of my Apple TVs, you probably buy four Roku boxes. Well, this is it, exactly. If you, other than going out and buying a new TV, and you're right, most TVs do support them, but the software platform is getting better with LG and Samsung. But you don't need to go back very far. Some of the Sony devices from not that long ago who claim to have iPlayer and claim to have YouTube, but it only lasted a couple of firmware updates. So you're going to be stuck at some point where it, your TV software if software isn't going to get updated anymore. And you're going to need to plug something into it to be able to continue watching. Or you just buy a new TV, which isn't very eco-friendly really, is it? Just throw your TV away because of that. No, it's not. And I'll be honest, I've never used really any of the software on my TVs. They've, I've got them all at varying ages. 
and I've never used any of it, even on my modern TV. I don't use any of the software. Yeah. I just use it to put Sky in PlayStation or an Apple TV, and that, that's it. I don't use any of the native functionality. It's not even plugged in with it with an aerial. Yeah, and there is the thought that how much tracking of your activity is going on by TV companies. The reason they can sell you a TV so cheaply in many cases is because they can get some sort of indication of what it is that you're watching in some way, shape, manner, or form. So without getting too creepy about it, I think, and they probably can over an HDMI port anyway, who, who's, who's to say, but I am a bit twitchy about what I actually install on the, on the TV's own device as I try and sort of limit it off a little bit to the other devices that are connected to it. I normally just dis- I disconnect mine from the internet. I do the firmware update and then I just disable it on my Eero and have I have a, f- a profile for TVs, put the TVs in that and just leave it di- disabled. And then when I want to go and do a firmware upgrade, I, I turn on that profile and allow them to talk to the internet. I just don't need anything on my TVs. I've got everything else is smart enough. Yeah, that's a, that's a topic for another day, setting up a VLAN and all having it, all your internet of things devices in a VLAN because you don't trust the things on your network, particularly some of the garage door openers and things like that that I've got kicking around. So, yeah. There's the trust bit as well. And in the old days when I had very limited internet, I also wanted to stop things just doing background activity because, you know, connectivity used to be at a prime, you know, a premium for me. And I didn't want anything getting in the way of slow, slowing down whatever I or the family were doing. No, it's, it's a fair point. So I think we've come around to Apple TV as being the thing that if what you really want is, is AirPlay streaming, then it's a quality device. It is more expensive than all the rest of them. And you can install all these apps, the ones we've talked about, some of the more obscure ones, the Jellyfins and the, and the Plexes and things like that, if you've got your own home media server kicking around. It does what you want it to do. The, the two versions that are available on the market at the moment are the Apple TV HD, which is about £130, £140 maybe, about 120 on refurb. It's a perfectly fine device. The actual box itself isn't that different from the other device that's on the market, which is the Apple TV 4K, except it doesn't support 4K, it does HD. The crucial difference beside that is you get a much better remote controller with the Apple TV 4K. You're disagreeing with me, Chris. I am disagreeing with you. They actually up- updated the remote in the regular HD at the same time, but they still the box hasn't changed, so the innards are slightly older hardware. So you but now get the new... Ship the- you know, now get the new remote, which is a rare move for Apple. I did not know that. That wasn't made hugely. I don't remember seeing a news story about that, in fact. No, so they still sell the HD, but it comes with the, the metal remote, we call it, say. And they still and they do the 4K, which has the metal remote and um, has better innards in the 4K. Well, it's, so got, it's yeah, an odd move for Apple. That is a very odd remote move. So I would say if you're trying to save a bit of money and you can get that decent remote control, then the Apple TV is almost a no-brainer if, you, if, you, if AirPlay is sort of your primary thing. And if you're ever going to have a 4K TV in the next couple of years, and I don't think there's that much of a rush to do so, then maybe think about the 4K, but that would be my advice. Yeah, agreed. I love those things. What what did just dawn on me as we were talking? You know, we've spoken before and other podcasts have made this reference that actually if you just deleted like the MacBook Pro from 2015 and showed them showed people the one we have now, you know, our, for t- 2014 MacBook Pro, and then you see the 2021 MacBook Pro, you think they're the natural successor. And it's kind of the same with the Apple TV. If you delete the old Apple TV um, out of the lineup, the one that they've shipped now looks like the natural successor because the remote has evolved and you could just miss that glass remote that we had in the middle. Yeah, that makes sense. That that middle remote it was one of the worst remote controls I've ever had. It was the same right, wrong shape. It, you couldn't tell which way up it was. It was very slippy. It would whip out your hands and go somewhere else. Not normally down the side of my uh, seat cushions and take me ages to find the thing again. 
just a terrible remote control. So I'm glad they updated it, and I'm, I'm even gladder that they've included it in that particular package. So that makes that recommendation a little bit easier. Just to finish my thought, and I'll do this very quickly, if you were really bloody-minded and you had some computer skills, you have the option to build your own streaming TV device using something like a Raspberry Pi, if you can get one in the constrained market the way it is at the moment. The sort of scalping that's going on for Raspberry Pis is insane for the Raspberry Pi 4 with a minute memory. The price has increased to £99 for a bare board with no SD cards or anything in it. It's a great little device. I don't think it's worth spending more than its sort of launch price uh, to have one. And yeah, there's a lot of maintenance then. It's effectively running a Linux under the hood. You need to keep updating it. You need to do stuff. And that even then, all the apps won't work seamlessly on it because it's a computer and it's a Linux computer and things like iPlayer do not play well with Linux computers for all sorts of DRM uh, type reasons. So it's probably more effort than it's worth. It feels like a lot of hard work if I'm really honest. Yeah, and the AirPlay compatibility with them I, I tried installing them, a couple of them in conference rooms and work back in the day because it seemed like a cheap, straightforward way to give people AirPlay. If they came in with an Android device, they could they could cast to it. If they came in with an Apple device, they could AirPlay to it. Was very hidden. Okay. Side note on conference rooms, if you're running Teams on your iPad and you go into a Teams conference room, you can cast to it now, which is a new thing Microsoft slash Apple have done in recent software in the last sort of three months. So you, you can be there on your phone or on your iPad and cast to for us as Surface Hub, which is brilliant because before it was like, I've got my iPhone on my iPad, but I've got no way of getting the content into that meeting or onto that screen. And they've opened that up, which is great. Does that work because it's a Surface Hub and you're going from a Microsoft software product to a Microsoft hardware? Potentially, yes. But in the old days, the, the Surface Hub only did Miracast, which you couldn't get on the iPhone. So whether it's that and they've built it into Teams on the iOS client, I don't know. But it's just, just a great, great feature because... The, the Teams app on the iPad needs a lot of love, and I'm surprised they added that in. <laughs> I think it's still better than the Teams app on the Mac. But anyway, uh, I think that'll do it for, for streaming devices. Well, hopefully, we've given you a bit of an idea uh, to, of, of the various options, certainly in the UK, that are available to you, uh, apart from what's built into your TV and why you might want to think twice about that. And for us, why we've ended up with, with Apple TVs everywhere as much as anywhere. Yep. So another question I was asked in, in our one of our work channels, actually, was... Do you use an app deleter uh, on your Mac? And I suppose you might struggle to answer this one as you don't run your Mac so much anymore. Uh, any thoughts about app deleters or what I mean by app deleters? You've got it in the list. The only one I really know about is Clean My Mac, um, which I have used. Occasionally, I've fixed family's computers and there might be some weird pop-up appearing or, or the homepage has been hijacked in Safari. And so I've used an app deleter just to go on and remove anything that I don't think is right. Um, and that's been clean my Mac, which I think is a quality product. I can't remember what it costs, but it did the job for me. And I, and I used it because I'd heard others use it. And so I had a bit of comfort in knowing that it, it was a well-known product. Yeah, so Clean My Mac is a good product. It, it's I've never had bad review, heard bad reviews about it. It's twenty nine ninety five British pounds for a, for an application that sort of clears the cruft out of your of your machine. You can't really go wrong with buying uh, Clean My Mac. The other two options that I've sort of found. So just take take a step back. Buy an app deleter. What happens a lot of the time when you install a piece of software from Apple is you get the DMG, you double click it, you get a disk, that which is a disk image. You drag that into your applications, you double click it and you launch it and that's fine. And when you want to get rid of it, you drag it to the trash because apples are meant to be that uh, simple. But actually they're not. They leave some cruft behind in, in library folders and things like that and preferences settings and JSON bits lying around here, there and everywhere. And these app deleters will, in the case of Clean My Mac, 
parse your hard disk, scan your hard disk, looking for sort of orphaned files within your library, and make sure that it's all gone. So if there were images or something left around from a drawing app or something like that, it would delete them for you, get look in your user's library, get rid of stuff out of there. They just do a more comprehensive job of getting rid of it than when you just drag an installed app from applications to the trash. So that's Clean My Mac. It's a known quantity, it's well reviewed, it's not gonna to toast your hard disk for you. The second one that I wanted to talk about Sorry, did you have a thought about that, Chris? I was just going to say, I'm amazed Apple have never really done something for a company so big on privacy. I'm amazed they've never really dealt with it. And I kind of wonder what cruft is lying around on all our iPhones where we've downloaded a game or, or something and installed it, played it, deleted it. Does the iPhone clean up after itself? Uh, probably less of a problem than the iPhone with the sandbox. And I know that the Mac has tried to move toward the sandbox. And I suspect that if you download and delete things exclusively from the App Store on the Mac then it is getting rid of a lot of the cruft and things, probably. I, mean, I can't say that with any confidence. So that, that would be my thought around that. And also, the, I think the reason Apple have never sort of enforced this is they never want to give an insight into the complexity of what actually gets installed everywhere on your Mac when you do it. They want it to be perceived as a, oh, you just drag that here and when you're done with it, you, you, know, you delete it from there and it's all gone. When it's not, it'll be not. So I, that's, that's my thought about that. The sort of second thing that I want to talk about, which isn't strictly speaking an app deleter, it's more complicated than that. And that's a product called Hazel from Noodlesoft. And Hazel is an automation application. So it can do things like, if there's a file on your desktop and I haven't touched it in four days, change the color of it so I'm aware that something new is going on. Or you could set a rule to automatically delete everything after seven days. You can set all sorts of profiles and things in folders or documents of a particular type or after time passes to do things. It's an extremely powerful application. And as part of what it does, when you delete things, it can do this kind of clean up the cruft off your hard disk as well. So it is a potentially valid option if you're looking for something that's a little more powerful than just removing what's on your hard disk to have a look at. So that's Hazel. Have you used Hazel previously? No, I've heard of it. My Mac skills have aged out so much, if I'm brutally honest. I do sit and noodle around with it every now and again. It's just more to have a poke and see what's changed. So sort of since... I don't know, about three OSs ago, I've barely used a Mac. Fair enough. So Hazel is an option uh, for people who are interested in app deleters. It's $42, so that'll be 30-ish pounds, I guess, by the time the conversion is done. It's a far more powerful product than Clean My Mac. It's not specifically designed for doing it, so, so that's a thought. Also potentially worth a look if you're into that thing. And then I thought I'd offer a free option as well, just because you've got to be comprehensive with these things and you know we're all a little bit cheap from time to time. And that is an app called App Cleaner, which you need to have installed first. It helps if it knows what's going on on your system. It is free, the reviews of it are quite good. I don't think it's going to toast your hard disk. It's from a reasonably trustworthy um, developer. No harm has come to the, uh, anybody as far as I'm aware from installing this. And all with this, you leave it running in the background, you drag the app to it rather than the trash when you want to delete it, and it goes off and finds all the preference files and sort of the hanging cruft that's left lying around and works perfectly well from that point on. So it's very straightforward. It's free. It sounds like you can't go wrong with it if that's explicitly what you wanted to do. I love the the website for this one because uh, it reminds me of the good old days of uh, like an indie sort of website selling Mac software. Just the whole style of it. I love it. it and it seems like a little leather sort of looking bookmark on one of the pages and that. So that, no, it looks good. I, are you nervous about using a free bit of software to delete stuff off your computer? I don't know. I probably should be, but I think that this, I've known this developer has been around a long time and I think I used to, ins to have this installed in a previous incarnation. Um, I trust this particular one. 
I wouldn't trust all of them, I guess. But, you know, these are three reputable developers uh, that have been Mac developers for, for a long time. And I think you should always do, do due diligence before you go off and install stuff on, on your Mac. And, you know, some of the stuff that's on GitHub, I know it's policed and you can check what's in there, but you're not always entirely sure what that is. And although there is less sort of nasty spyware and things like that for the Mac, Going out and looking for this kind of thing explicitly is is probably fine. Always check it. But it's the stuff that pops up. You don't see it quite so much anymore. But pops up on websites or, or tells you you've got stuff installed that you should be more careful of. You only tend to get that on the shadier corners of the internet anyway. So I think uh, something like FreeMaxOff is probably safe enough uh, for this kind of thing. And certainly the other two applications that I have. Uh, one sort of additional, well, two additional thoughts. The first one is... Things like this aren't available on the App Store because the sandboxing doesn't allow them that sort of permissions to do so. You've got to be explicitly blessed. So that's why they don't appear inside of Apple's walled garden. You have got to go looking outside of it for these kind of applications. And then the second thing is, I don't actually run any of these things myself because for what's left lying around on my hard disk, hard disks are big enough these days, I really don't care. It doesn't bother me that there's odd library file left kicking around somewhere that uh, that's left. And that's just the way I run it. I can understand that if you are a bit obsessive compulsive about what's going on on your, on your hard disk and you want to have the most amount of space free, then fair enough, I kind of get it. But in these days of at least sort of 5, 12 gig terabyte hard disks and above, it's really not too much of a problem. Yeah, we're a long way away from the old days, aren't we, of struggling for every megabyte you can pos possibly garner. So that's fair enough. Now, I think it's interesting. I generally don't run them on people's computers unless they are struggling with either there's something that doesn't look right on there or they just need some space that's that's when i'll fire them up yeah i think that's that's reasonable and then the the other side which we maybe talk about another another day is those apps for graphing your hard disk where you know it gives you a visualization of what's on your hard disk the size of particular files it's almost always video everyone you'll have video kicking about in your hard disk somewhere that's taking up lots of space that you, where you can sort of visualize it and check where they are and delete them if necessary don't delete anything important people but i think another day if, if asked it might be worth sort of a delve into those kind of apps but quite nice to sort of have a think about these these sort of classic questions about how do you deal with all this stuff on your mac yeah like i said it takes me back i've done it for three or four years so uh that was good, but you're right, a little bit of uh, tidying up doesn't do any harm, especially if you do migration assistant, you've moved from machine to machine, you probably have picked up a little bit of cruft as you move along. Yeah, absolutely. And between that and, you know, Hazel intrigues me, that sort of, to be organized enough to say, okay, you've left this in your downloads folder for seven days, you haven't touched it, color it red, or whatever it is the rule you can apply. That's that's a level of automation that I've never needed, but always sort of vaguely appeals to me. That would be cool if I did this kind of stuff, but I think it's probably as much hassle setting it up as it is actually dealing with the consequences of it. Yeah, fair enough. Should we move along? Let's move along. So our next topic is on CarPlay. So do you want to tell us about your new BMW and CarPlay? Yeah, so I selfishly put this one in there. So I do have a shiny new BMW i4, which does have CarPlay on it. I got one that shipped with the right chip and the right firmware, which is good. But I just wanted to touch on a couple of bits now. I've used it. I've only had it four or five days. And I just thought, you know what, I'll just touch on what, what I've played with and what I haven't and what's good and the bad. So first up was linked my, my new car to CarPlay, piece of cake, as always, love that. But one thing I noticed in the settings on your iPhone where you choose CarPlay on and off and you can move the icons around. It's got a thing called enhanced integration. I was like, well, what does that mean? It's turned on by default, which is great. But my other car or well, my wife's car doesn't have enhanced integration. So apparently enhanced integration is, and this is their, their text, not mine, sharing which apps on your iPhone use CarPlay allows this car to quickly switch back to these apps in CarPlay. CarPlay will work without this. I don't really know what that means. I don't know what that means either. I 
thought it might allow the apps to do more or the car to do more with it. But anyway, so there's that one. So Ticket supports the enhanced car play. And it's all wireless, which uh, my previous BMW was. And they do that really, really well. So loving CarPlay. And then what this one supports is multiple screens. So you're driving along, you've got maps open and you you set the route to your work or home. And then in the middle screen, so in the driver's console, in between the dials, it will then show you the map and the directions, which is great. And then as well on the heads up display, it will also show you the turns you need to take coming up. So it uses all three screens in the car, which I thought was great because I hadn't ever seen uh, CarPlay do that. And then equally, whatever you're playing will appear in the now playing widget the BMW offer that you can also put between the dials on the driver's dash. And if you use the jog wheel on the heads up display, you can skip the next track and things. So what BMW have done with Apple, I think, is just make it quite seamless, whether you're using a bit of the BMW tech or you're using a bit of the Apple tech, it all kind of just works. So I'm um, really enjoying it. And I would be would have been a little probably gutted if it hadn't shit with CarPlay, but would have made it through a month so the multiple screens is great the one thing though that was a bit disappointing this thing's got like a 14 inch screen in the center console not as big as what you've got in your tesla but but pretty sizable and what just looked a bit naff to me was like the now playing screen in music so you've got the album art on the left big bit of text some big buttons it's just not scaling very well on uh, the really big widescreen in my previous car i think i had like an 18 inch screen and uh, CarPlay only filled two thirds. That was a weird BMW thing at the time, but everything looks a lot crisper and was formatted for it. And it feels like the screen is a good enough resolution, but how Apple are dealing with the, the screen resolution isn't good enough. And so, like I say, the now playing screen particularly sticks out because it's just not nicely formatted. The maps look good. The map, the map screen looks really good, but just you're going to be on the now playing screen quite a bit and browsing through it just... I don't know, it just looks a little bit blurry and not nice. And it's not taking advantage of, you know, a 14-inch widescreen, which is as wide as a laptop. So I think they need like size classes like they do on the iPad and stuff. And it needs to be a bit smart about how it presents it rather than just, you know, doing the Swift UI thing where it just fills all the space no matter what size screen you've got. So I was actually a little disappointed with CarPlay on the big screen, if I'm honest. Yeah, that that would upset me a little bit. I think if you've got such a lot of real estate on the screen and more than one screen as well to be able to display that kind of information they should do a more a cleverer job about that yeah everything just looks a bit big and chunky all the buttons and that i mean it works well with the i know you don't like the dial but it does work well with the dial and the only reason i like the dial i got really used to my previous car because they'd added the touch screen after they designed the car and it was just slightly too far away for the driver to reach and so i used the dial a lot and actually we're actually driving along it is a bit safer, in my view, to use the dial because you can navigate the screen and you're not turning your, your full attention to it. So uh, I'm a, I am a big fan of the dial. But I'm um, generally loving it all. The integration is very good. And I'm hopeful that iOS, iOS 16 will bring, hopefully, some CarPlay updates to it as, as they seem to do little and often. I still love CarPlay. It's so good. It just I just want to play some tunes and off I go. Yeah, again, I like the concept of CarPlay. There are things I miss about, you know, as we touched on last week about what the Tesla doesn't offer in terms of it. Yeah, it did make me go and look if there was any ability to do so because there was a new story today about a developer that found a way to get uh, CarPlay working in a Tesla. The way being buy a Raspberry Pi, as I was saying earlier, might be an option. Do some soldering, find some bits and pieces and hack it into your Tesla. And then 
it might work because reading the article, uh, the way it works is it displays in the browser of the Tesla. On my Tesla, I don't know, this is just a UK thing, but the second you put it into drive, the browser goes away and you're not presented with that screen. So that's not going to work very well, is it? So I think that's a bit of a limitation of it. Yeah, that doesn't sound great for CarPlay that you want whilst you're driving. No, and, and I, I think it's far safer that a browser doesn't show while you're sort of driving along the road. Because let's face it, if you can display a browser, you can have Netflix running, or you can have something that will work in a browser running. Or, I don't know, play Angry Birds or some sort of browser-based game while you're driving. And that's really, really stupid idea. Do you, do you know one thing I did think of whilst you mentioned Netflix? I wonder whether Apple would bring Apple TV Plus to CarPlay. Because whilst you're stationary in other cars, such as your Tesla, you can watch films. Why wouldn't they do that? They seem very slow to do so. So I don't know what your BMW does, but as soon as you're in park, you're offered theater mode. Theater mode gives you uh, YouTube, Tesla's own channel, which is YouTube, Disney Plus, and that might be it. That might be it. YouTube, I don't, I Netflix. don't think mine does any of that. No. Well, I'm surprised Apple, Apple could surely do that. They know if you're driving and how fast you're going. So um, yeah, they could. Interesting to see. That could, well, and equally. BMW and Tesla could offer that as an app on their cars to do. Let's face it, if you're charging for 35 minutes, why not watch a bit of YouTube or fire up a bit of Apple, a bit of severance? It's just what you need while you're waiting for the car to top up. As long as it's while you're stationary, I'm in support of it. But other than that, I'm very happy not to have it. In my last BMW, you could actually put a DVD in and watch, watch the DVD on the screen. And it was a good quality screen, to be fair. It was obviously only an 18-inch screen. So I'm, I'm in support of it, but it's got to be stationary for me. I'm not a fan of this automated driving and watching TV at the same time. Yeah, it's the, I agree with you. The car has to be in park. Wait, Go for it. Last bit. So the other thing I did do was set up Apple Car Key, which I was quite interested just to noodle around with. So it's quite cool. So you put your phone in the Qi charger, you go on the device and go, right, I want to make this the, the car key. It whizzes and whirs. You have to have both your car keys in the car to do it. So the original keys that came with the car. So it has to be both of them, though, which I found a bit odd. Are they physical keys? Yeah. Like, like actual bits well, of metal? It, no, is it like a zapper. Right, okay. It's got the key hidden hidden behind, you know, the, the zapper bit of it. So um, you have to have both those in the car, and then it the phone pairs to your BMW, and it downloads whatever it needs to do it. And then at the same time, it goes, do you want to put it on your watch? So I think that bit's great, really nice. And then, then when you walk up to your car, you can just put your phone. You don't need to open the wallet app or your watch. Um, on the watch, you do need to double tap the the side button, but you put put that on the on the driver's door, and it will unlock the car. You can get in, and you just pop your phone uh, on the Qi charger, and you can start the car, and off you go. Really good. The only few things that I wasn't so big on is it doesn't unlock all the doors; it just unlocks the driver's door and things. And it's just like, well, if you're going to do it, I just want it to work like the car key, and the car key also does proximity, so that as I walk towards the car, I'll unlock all the doors. Brilliant. And as I walk away, it locks them all. Why can't my iPhone do that? Like, it just felt like it was halfway house. There's, I don't, and again, whether some updates will come, I don't know. But the concept is great. I can get into my car with my phone or my watch. Happy days. And I can start the car with just the phone. But it was just a bit annoying. It didn't have all the conveniences of a regular key because surely it could do that. And the last thing is, weirdly, the BMW also comes with a NFC credit card which you can use like your phone, in essence, to unlock the court, unlock the doors and start the car if you wanted to. So you don't have to use your phone. They do do a credit card as well. So actually for my car, I can get into it, use my watch or my phone or this credit card or one of the two car keys that came with it. It's, I don't know. They, it feels like they need to pick something and, and really develop it. 
Yes, that's interesting. So, I mean, I'll, I'll compare and contrast the Tesla experience. The Tesla doesn't come with any physical metal keys. It just comes with two NFC so you've cards. just got the, the credit card that I get as an optional extra, by the looks of it. So you get two of them. You don't need all of them in the car to add more devices, though. And once your Tesla account is activated, you can then add a phone to it as well. You must have the NFC card to begin with, which you tap to a special secret area in the car, which isn't the NFC, which isn't the phone charger. It's somewhere else. It's the, car, the, the NFC card has to be resting on that. And then you just have to have the phone in the car. You add a new key, you authenticate the phone, and then the phone is your key. You can get an app, an app for your watch as well to do it. But it does do all the things you're talking about. So you walk towards the car with your phone. It will sense the proximity and it opens all the door. It will open the door when you go open it. It doesn't just pop the locks. You need, yeah, to, act, you need to pull the handle, at which point it'll unlock any of the doors on the car. And your driver's seat is synced to that as well. So it knows your phone when you walk up to it. If it's my phone, the, the seat moves into my position or assumes it's going to be me for that position. So uh, BMW do do the profile piece. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's not a million miles away. What's the app like? So the Tesla app, I can unlock, I can lock, I can open the boot, I can open the front, I can sound the horn, I can open the windows, I can set the climate in the morning. You know, particularly it was very handy in the winter that, you know, it's one degree outside, everything's frosty, 10 minutes before I leave, heat the car up to 20 degrees, and, and all that piece works really well. So in the modern world, I've not done a lot of travelling as you can imagine. Um, I can lock, unlock, I can flash the lights, I can precondition it, I can see what the charging is doing, but I've not done really much more than that. And I can set how, how much charge limit I want and all, all those sorts of things. I don't think it is as, as advanced as what you've got. I certainly haven't got any widgets to put on my home screen of, of my iPhone, which I know you can do. So I think they, they're getting there. The I was a little disappointed with the app because the app hasn't moved on since my last BMW, which was a 2017 plate that I had for three years. And obviously, other than charging the battery, all the functions that I can do for this current 22 model BMW, I could have done in my 17 plate BMW. So I think the app's okay, but there's a little bit more work to do, I would suggest. But on the whole, I'm very happy with it all. It's really cool. And it's good to see where the tech tech is going. That's good. It's exciting. And I have thought of one little feature that, that builds into the phone that if your BMW doesn't do it, they really should. And that's if you're in Google Maps or Apple Maps, you can click share this location and share to the Tesla. So when you rock up to it next time, it's already pre-programmed into the sat-nav. That's quite handy. Yeah, but if you've got CarPlay, you don't need to do it. I don't have CarPlay. No, but if you've got CarPlay in your BMW, you just go into CarPlay and yeah, you, but, you but, can see with the locations you browsed. Can you? Yeah. Does that work on finding chargers on Apple Maps these days? Yep. It's got EV charge. Do you know what? We tried out the weekend. It's like, oh, no, it's got EV chargers in there. Now. I hadn't seen that before. Mm. All right. So I, I think they are doing some cool stuff. But obviously, if you browse the location on your iPhone, you just get in the car and it'll be in your location list. You just tap go there. And off you go because you don't need to send it to the car because you're just using it. I think with the, if you use the iDrive, the BMW software, you can do stuff such as send, send. But I don't use any of the BMW stuff. Well, you got all those CarPlay screens. You need to make the most of them. It's fair enough. Yeah. Anyway, so happy, happy bunny. Just looking, looking forward to some improvements hopefully coming in. Great. In iOS at sixteen. Well, I'm glad you're happy with your car. I'm glad that you've got CarPlay back after all this time of of driving the Mini without them. And we'll hopefully have some updates in the future from it because it sounds like it's uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, I'll keep you posted. Brilliant. I think we can call that a show, Chris. Yeah, I think we're done. We've gone a little long, haven't we? So. If anybody wants to get in contact, do drop an email, wakefromsleep at protonmail.com or drop us a tweet on Twitter on w at, at WFS underscore podcast. Happy for any feedback. Do get in contact. 
Yeah, it's great. And all these questions have come across in the week. Both people actually listen to the podcast because I might have talked about it at work as well. So we'll, we'll actually have some live feedback in some way, shape, manner or form from them as well. So good show and talk to you next week, Chris. Cool. Cheers, Rod. See you next week. See you next week.